Disrupting the flow of money into coal, gas, and oil is critical to limiting the impacts of climate change. Your bank could be investing billions of dollars into the fossil fuel industry. Bank Australia is an ethical bank that doesn't fund harmful industries. Join us and over 180,000 Australians who have made the switch. Search Bank Australia Solutions. My name is Kate Ashmore, and I'm a proud Jar Jar Wurrung person. Today's episode of The Cool Down was recorded on the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation, and the Gadigal lands of the Aura Nation. Together with Footy for Climate, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. Footy comes from Manguk, a First Nations game that has been played on these lands, which have been protected and nurtured by Australia's first people for tens of thousands of years. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging for their continued connection to the land, water and culture, and look to their guidance and knowledge as we work towards a more sustainable future. We acknowledge the sovereignty was never ceded. This was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome back to another episode of The Cooldown by Footy for Climate, brought to you by Bank Australia. I'm Nick Barr, your host this week for a slightly different episode. I'm a board director at Footy for Climate, as well as a Giants player, recording today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. On this episode, I sit down with Grace Vegasana, Climate and Racial Justice Director at AYCC, Emma Pocock, Founder and CEO of Frontrunners, and Sam Moston, Chief Executive Women President and Climate Change and Gender Equity Advocate, to talk about women in climate. We chat with Grace about life in a climate-affected region like Greater Western Sydney and how the heat island effect impacts the diverse communities in that area. We hear from Emma about growing up in a mining town in Western Australia and how her involvement with a community project in Zimbabwe with female farmers led to a career in climate working with athletes. Sam shared the wisdom she's gained from a long career in business, footy and climate. She tells us how her love for footy serves as a motivator to protect the future of the game from the impacts of climate change. I had a lot of fun hosting this episode and it was very special to be joined by these three incredible women who are doing such amazing work tackling climate change. I hope you enjoy it. The Cooldown is brought to you by Bank Australia. Now, this episode of The Cooldown is slightly different to previous ones as we have three guests instead of two. So we're going to do things slightly differently. I'm going to ask a few questions and I'd like to get an answer from each of you. Grace, I'll start off with you. Women and girls are disproportionately affected by climate change, but they're also overwhelmingly leading the charge on climate action. Why do you think this is? I think historically we've seen people who are coming into leadership positions within the climate space, either coming from an environmental care background where they care about their local backyard, they care about their local beach, they care about their local national park, or alternatively, people often come from the social justice space, whether that's the feminist movement, um, whether that's different intersecting climate issues. Um, But now I think we're also seeing an overlaying um, sort of interpretation of climate justice actually coming through lived experience and young people who are already experiencing um, so many of the climate impacts that we're seeing literally unfold every single day, whether that's right now today or that was through Black Summer or whether that will be this upcoming summer through uh, bushfires and heatwaves. And so we're really seeing young people and young women and non-men people and also non, non-gender conforming people actually stepping up, stepping up to lead in this space in a way that uh, 
other movements haven't historically seen, I think young women and non-gender conforming people also find a sense of home in Mm. the climate movement and the way that it's built to actually welcome in other people and create a more accessible movement than has existed previously. And I think that's all work of a lot of generations of women actually Mm -hmm. to build that space into what it is now. There's a long legacy that is being left behind from people who have come from that social justice and intersectional climate space Mm -hmm. um, to create a movement that is actually built for the communities it serves. And we know that women are really disproportionately impacted by climate change, whether that's the impacts that they feel uh, when the disasters are happening, whether that's the increases of domestic violence that happens during disasters and stress, um, whether that's women who are caretakers um, and have parental responsibilities not being able to access cooling systems in their Mm -hmm. homes and not being able to afford it, whether that's people who are single parents and not being able to actually cool down a whole house or be Mm. able to escape from the impending climate disasters that we're seeing. And I think, yeah, there's lots of women that are feeling the front lines of that who are seeing that more and more in their everyday and that's really encouraging them to step up into leadership positions because they know it's not just a future problem, it's already impacting them and it has been impacting them Mm. disproportionately for so long. Mm. Great answer, Grace. Em? Yeah, I mean, that was an amazing, um, <laughs> amazing answer from Grace. I guess to add to that, I, I think a lot about um, the conversations that I have with my friends, mm. my peers, and so often the kind of care work has fallen historically to women yeah. and, and we spend, the, you know, as a consequence of that, we spend so much time thinking about caring for our families and for the communities that we live in. Mm-hmm. And that's where we've seen the impacts of climate hitting first, Mm. Um, whether that's, you know, kids' sport being cancelled because of heat or bushfire or flood events, whether that's flooding in Lismore, Mm. um, whether that's extreme heat in Penrith. Um, You know, I'm having conversations all the time with my friends. You know, I'm in my mid-30s now, people either having babies or thinking about having babies and Mm. thinking about the kind of future that they're going to be raising their families in. And, you know, more often than not, those are conversations that I'm having with with women, not with men. And Mm. so I think that there's something about this history of women doing this kind of family and community care that means that we're more alive to the threat of climate Um, Mm. and often... Um, have the capacity to do that community organising on top of all the other things that women are doing, (laughs) you know. They have those um, social connections that allow them to do that. And so much of how the climate movement has existed has been through that kind of community organising that Mm. so often falls to women to do. So, Mm. yeah, it's one of those things where one of the reasons we started Front Row is because we thought the climate movement had a masculinity problem, that we actually need more men speaking up about this, that Mm. this isn't something that should just fall to women. Um, And so, you know, we've got a heap of amazing female athletes who've been involved in that, but we're also starting to see some some men really advocating for very serious change because they're Mm. also concerned about their communities. So Mm. I hope that it's changing, but I hope that we don't lose sight of the fact that women have played such a significant role in doing this work and continue to do so. Yeah. Mm. Sam? I can't better the way in which um, Emma and Grace have described what is essentially the gender norms Mm. that persist across our society. And the only piece I'd add on that front is it's women who are and and I'm I'm very clear about it, I don't want to be so binary in my language, Grace, about this, so I'll use women and those that identify as women and are not gender um, bound. But 
typically it's women who are carers, homemakers. Mm. Um, they look after, they see the things happening at a very close range, as you've said. Mm. They also are the food production in, in, in countries where you've both spoken about, they are actually at the f- they are right at the forefront of what's happening mm. with um, food production and and how to take care of a family and what's happening with climate crises. But if I take a slightly different angle, I'd say that gendered part is also that women have are just brave. Mm. I think women are so brave on this and historically been brave. Rachel Carson with Silent Spring mm. that took on the, um, the 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 industries that were polluting America, and she was you know, people tried to destroy her life. Um, she was. The victim of before they were trolling, um, it was personal to her about not having a, a role um, to play and take on pharmaceuticals and others about mm. water quality. Um, Naomi Oreskes was one of the great researchers who un- unpacked um, how in big industry was dealing with um, um, hiding the, the toxic issues of tobacco, of um, asbestos, and then how they, they they drew those climate wars and made everything ideological. She called that out um, mm. and was on the front line of t- talking about why we have to think about these things ourselves. Um, Mariana Mazzucato is rewriting the economic model for how we deal with these things because she looks at economics differently and women mm. econ- economists are worth listening to because they're ahead of everything, yeah. whether it's <laughs> climate or social issues. Yeah. They are women who happen to be economists but they bring their their life experience to how they describe the economics. And Kate Rayworth, the pioneer of donut economics. I was just going to bring her up. So (laughs) if you think about where they're all women at the top of their field who've gone off and said, actually, this system does not work and I'm going to actually be a pioneer and let's be brave Mm. and I'm going to put new ideas for big systems change out there. Mm. And something about men conforming or being part of a group that don't see what needs to change And they're terrified. I think there's a terror about that. And I think it's important to bring men along and say Mm. none of these new models are anything other than adapting to a a real world context where we all belong and where we're all included. I'd love to hear more men. I'd love to hear many, many more men Mm. talking about this. But the bravery has sat, I think, at the forefront. Same with the climate, the youth climate movement. You know, we don't have to talk about Greta Thunberg, but we can talk about Amanda McKenzie and mm. um, and uh, Anna Rose and you and and mm. and all of. I mean, that's what's happened, and it would be wonderful to see men step up and mm. actually do some of that lifting. Mm. Absolutely. Second question: Having the right climate messengers is so important. Who are they, and and why? Grace, I'll start with you again. Sure. Um, So in community organising, one of the bread and butter principles is using the snowflake model of community organising. And it's based off this concept that a snowflake is unique as any community is, but in the centre you have a certain person or a certain like position that they have um, and then they branch out. They know five people around them. They talk to those five people. Those five people know Five more people that might be interested, might not, give it a try. And it sort of like branches out as a snowflake does and you're always reaching new people. But there's always someone in the community, whether that is you and then your neighbour and then your coach and then your school teacher and um, the random person that follows you on Facebook that always wants to start (laughs) an argument in the comments. But there's always (laughs) some people around you that want to hear or want to be involved in some way, but it's just about actually reaching out to them. And so Mm. you start at the centre of that snowflake, you reach out to the people, they reach out to their people, and Mm. then you've reached an entire community Mm. in a way that wasn't entirely just you having these conversations by yourself. Mm. And so I think sport plays a really interesting role in the way that the snowflake model works in that you're always reaching people who traditionally would not care about climate change but see the impacts. Mm. Um, And I remember, Nick, we had this conversation where 
you were talking about driving from the eastern suburbs into the ground that you were training in in Western Sydney and how mm. hot that difference was. And mm. there are so many people that feel that every single day but can't necessarily put the words to what they're feeling in that mm. experience. And so there's like the opportunity for athletes to be like, yeah, it's really hot outside. Like this is like something we've been seeing for so long, mm. um, having like that lived experience but also connecting with people who traditionally would not consider themselves as being advocates mm. for climate and climate justice. I think there's, yeah, the real opportunity to actually branch out into communities in ways that we've never actually been able to reach before and, mm. yeah, reaching people from various like diversities as well, whether mm. that's lower income people who are more concerned with calling their homes mm. and actually adapting to heat bushfires, floods, severe storms and hailstones. Like I think there's so much to do in how the front lines of climate change is really shifting to actually become a reality for so many people. But those people aren't actually being able to be reached by traditional climate mm. messaging. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think athletes have a really important role to play as community leaders and actually mm people who are connected to so much more of the community than other people are. Mm, absolutely. And I think you're right, Grace, athletes are such, I don't really know why we're so trusted, but um, athletes are, you know, quite a trusted messenger um, and people love to listen to them because they watch them playing on the field. But if you can really try and use, I guess, that platform to create some positive change, I think you're right. They're, they're a trusted source and um, people want to connect with something that's you know, a bit different. And I think sport is a great way into that. And that's, I guess, a lot of a, a big reason as to why you co-founded Front Runners. Why do you think athletes are such great messengers? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I often encounter athletes who really care so deeply about climate, but they'll say things to me like, oh, I don't have that many followers. So, you know, mm. I'm not going to be the best person to um, use my platform on this. And we just find that that's absolutely not true. Mm. Um, the thing that's really powerful is the story that you have to tell. And we found across launching the cool down and those like, you know, 400 plus athletes who wanted to be part of that and then launching Footy for Climate in the wake of that. I spoke to so many athletes who wanted to find a way to tell their story about why they care about climate. And so I'd say things to them like, oh, will you send me some dot points and I'll help put it together into a story? And they'd send me their dot points and I'd add a few joining words and send it back to them and they'd be like, oh, this is incredible. You know, how did you do this? And I'll say, I just literally added a with and an and. This is your story. Like you have a powerful story to tell. And mm. I think once you can connect the things that have happened in your life to climate change, whether mm. that's your favourite holiday destination that you used to go to it with your family every year as a kid over the mm. summer that was affected by the Black Summer bushfires, whether that's not being able to take your kids to the park for weeks on end because your city was blanketed by bushfire smoke, whether mm. that was, you know, seeing season after season affected by rainfall in this freaky La Nina period that mm. we've been in. You know, so many of us now have a climate story to tell. Mm. We have things that we love that are going to be affected or already are being affected by climate and mm. helping people realise that they have a powerful story to tell already mm. and that it doesn't matter if they've got three million followers or a thousand, uh, you know, it comes back to that quote that we were talking mm. about at the start, like your task isn't to fix the entire world at once, mm. but to reach out and mend the part of the world that's within your reach. Mm. Um, and so, you know, obviously we're working with athletes who are amazing messengers and, and really powerful at doing this, but it's because 
they have such you know, incredibly personal stories to tell. And I think that that's the answer that we often give when they say, oh, but I don't know enough about the science. So mm. you don't have to talk about that. Yeah. You have to talk about how this is affecting your life and yeah. why you care about it. What's in What's in your reach. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Sam? I think we just have to uh, treat people with respect where we find them, mm. which I think is what you've both been saying. And that is in Australia, we are culturally sport addicted. Mm. And so we... We crave the we, you know, we crave the sporting seasons. We lock in. We become you know, tragic followers, as we know, um, Nick. And suddenly, those those people in sport are carrying enormous cultural authority. Mm. And I think whether they're footy players or they're cricketers or they they're already trusted largely mm. by a community. When they when they deviate and say, actually, on this stuff, I really care about this too. Mm. And I'm going to share my personal story. If, there's a, just a, a natural um, allegiance with that by so many people who follow sport to say, mm. well, if Pat Cummings says that, then I can do that. Yeah, and it gives you permission. It's permission and it allows people to bring their – you find that you, 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 the people find that issue and hear that where they are. Mm. And I think, this is, I think this is one of the most incredible programs of actually tapping into this incredibly deep vein of cultural norms of how much we are sport obsessed mm. and it, it can be every sport and it can mm. be, um, and for those that don't have a sports um, um, facing love, you know, I think about what um, years ago at the Sydney Theatre Company, when I was on the board there, we we did it through an arts thing and we had, we had the Sydney Theatre mm. Company, we had this program that said um, the planet is not a dress rehearsal mm. and we turned the whole of the, the Sydney Theatre Company into a, a green power source mm. and we told every person who came to a show that what you're seeing has had a climate assessment done and mm. um, it'll be slightly warmer here because we're not using as much um, cooling, mm. but you as a theatre goer should be concerned about the climate. And so many of those people did love sport, but many were getting their, their message mm. from actors and from our creative industry saying, actually, I'm in a I'm in a venue now seeing something cultural that's paying its its way on climate issues. So mm. I think the same with supermarket. When you walk into a supermarket and and I would love to walk into a supermarket today and and talk to young people about here are the seasons. You can see the seasons. Mm. We're not shipping in stuff from all around the world because um because the supermarket thinks you want everything all the time. We actually limit our mm. our sites and I'd love that kind of thing to be as normal as as hearing a sports person talking about the climate impact and then say we're all adjusting our lives to deal with it and we're all now feeling this. And so when we hear that confirmed by people we admire and whose posters are up in our kids' bedrooms and the like, it's a different, it's a better conversation and it's it's one that I think takes us much further than telling people to read the IPCC report or <laughs> listen to um, a climate scientist. read that whole thing? I do. I'm a, a nerd. But, but, you know, I, I, think it, I, I think about the, the late Professor Will Steffen who passed away mm. over the summer, um, one of the great science communicators who would always just come back and say, do what you can do. You know, don't worry, the scientists are working on all of this. We're, we've actually, we're telling you what you need to do, mm. um, but always with optimism and say, talk to your communities, share the share what you're experiencing, collect in a big, big collect together and do things and figure it out, the things you're going to do, and then take this matter up to your local MPs, mm. make it an issue and, and help us traverse this time we've been in, which has been highly ideological and take us through to this is about our lives mm. and we're all part of it. But sport, I think, for Australians, I think it's an incredibly thing, incredibly important thing that you're doing mm. with this program and with front runners because we trust our sports stars.
I've got two more questions for you both. We ask everyone who comes on the cool down um, these two questions. Grace, I'll start with you. You always answer these questions so eloquent, eloquently. Um, Grace, what gives you hope? I think there's so many ways to answer this question. I think I definitely oscillate between hope and anger. Um, <laughs> but I think naturally hope sort of looks like to me like a huge amount of people from like so many different backgrounds, so many different stories, so many different walks of life actually doing something about something that they care about collectively. And I think like we're powerful as an individual, but we're also powerful as like a collective. And I think that's where I like draw my inspiration and my hope from when I see like for me, it's young people actually banding together to fight for a shared future that they believe in and yep. fight for their present and fight for the past that has been largely like really impacted and defined by the climate crisis and their generation will continue to be defined by this. Mm. And I think that really gives me hope. Like I think it's people actually standing up for a collective future um, and envisioning this world that we could have and actually fighting for what we need. Um, and I often come back to like, the union principle of like we fight for the bread but we fight for the roses too and it's like this principle that yes we're fighting to prevent food scarcity to prevent homes being lost fighting for like the essentials in our life but we're also fighting for the things that bring us joy and mm. hope and love and that community connection that we need to actually thrive is actually what we're fighting for too and I think the harder we can fight um, with the most amount of people, the faster we can win. Um, and we can actually win that beautiful, better world that we want to see and thrive and have kids and have them grow up playing sport and AFL and living beautiful lives too. That's awesome. Em, what gives you hope? I mean, it sounds like very cliche to say on a podcast about women and climate, but um, <laughs> the thing that really does give me hope is the incredible young women that I get to work with um, because of the work that I'm doing at Front Runners, whether it's you and Eloise Nick at, at Front Runners or Izzy in the Footy for Climate team, people like Grace, um, Anjali Sharma, the lead litigant in the Sharma v. Lay case, um, Tish and Lily at Groundswell. Um, you know, it's just a, a movement full of incredibly smart, passionate young women uh, who I feel really privileged to work alongside. Um, and I, you know, there are days definitely where I feel a bit hopeless and, and, and a lot of despair and it's a huge motivator that I can't give up. I can't stop working at it because there are these incredible young women who've given up so much of other careers that they could have had, other things that they could have done uh, to fix this for all of us. And I think that's, you know, a remarkable thing to get to play a small part in. Couldn't agree more. Sam, what gives you hope? Years ago, I went to a Buddhist retreat put on by the Rigpa Association and um, we were all encouraged to learn how to meditate. And I was so full of rage and concern that we weren't going to solve the climate crisis and gender equality and First Nations justice. I was sort of in that mood and I said to the, the man leading us, how on earth do we balance this all out? And he said, you let go and never give up. And I, I think my hope comes from um, it, it does get exhausting. It, it does get frightening. It is You can get yourself lost in, mm. in the things that are really challenging, and that's okay. We have to actually go through that, and that's what I think great climate leaders and the women on this podcast are, are doing and living all the time, and it's hard work. Um, and so that's the case of just sometimes you've just got to let go of that 
but then you settle back into the, you're never going to give up. We just come back at it again and we, we renew ourselves, we fill our cups, mm. um, we do it um, collectively and collaboratively, we bring others with us. And I agree that I see hope in young people, particularly young women, but not exclusively, but uh, who are rewriting what it will mean to be part of a community who are rewriting what leadership looks like, rewriting what economic systems look like, rewriting the circular economy. Those things are what, where I sort of then go to my well of driving hope to say that's what's innovation, that's what driving the, how the future will be. I, not, I may not be around to see it, but I, mm. I, my daughter will be, and it will be a different world, and it will be one mm. that will actually take stock and account for nature mm. and will put a price on those things that we have abused and said wasn't part of our economic system, which was a lie. Mm. We were, you know, I think the push to actually account for nature, mm. which will become a corporate responsibility, as, as it has with the task force on climate-related um, financial disclosures, the nature one is going to really push mm. every economic system to say we cannot utilise nature as a as an unbounded resource. We have to reinvest in it and create more of a nature-based economy. Mm. That's worth. That's gives me huge hope to mm. think about a world where we're acquitting ourselves for for our nature and reinvesting in nature, mm. and um, and the the great joy that comes from thinking about that's a, that's a great new world. Mm. That's one worth really really thinking about and supporting the the young people, um, not exclusively women, but lots of those women mm. to say we're with you and alongside you. And I think in some respect is for people like me, the older people, to get out of the way and kind of let that let all these things. Um, flourish and mm. think about what that world will look like and what we really value as a community. You're not in the way, Sam. Yeah, we well, don't. No, 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 it's extraordinary what I've learned from you, Grace, about governance and what matters. And um, in the lead up to the May uh, 22 um, um, election, we saw women particularly, again, not exclusively, say the things that matter to them and where they wanted their parliaments to look more like the future was um, gender equality, climate change and integrity. Mm. And we saw the parliament change. We saw the rise of the independence. We saw Dave into the Senate. We saw seven women into the House mm. representing their communities. That is a fundamental shift in our political system mm. and it starts to pull apart the two-party system because the community is saying that doesn't work for us anymore. That's hopeful. And mm. um, and it's already changing the conversations that our legislators are having, mm. and the young people we see becoming mayors and sitting on local councils who are bringing mm. all that into governance of their local communities. I just, how thrilling is that? So mm. I'm full of hope. Mm. You let go, but you don't give up. Write it down. <laughs> One more question, Grace. How do we tackle climate change? It's only a small question. <laughs> Small question. Um, yeah, I'm a firm believer in collective action is how we win. I think um, we've got such a long legacy and a long history of people power being the way that we forge a new future. And I often come back to this quote that a better future is not just possible, it's she's already on her way. Mm. And I think the way that we actually build that better future is actually a quote from The Simpsons, if anyone watches The Simpsons. Um <laughs> that it's a crisis and it's an opportunity because it's a crisis-tunity. Um, <laughs> and so the crisis-tunity we're faced with is like all of these compounding issues that our generations are facing, whether that's the cost of living, the housing crisis, building climate-proofed homes, solving the climate crisis, just a little to-do list for your Thursday afternoon. <laughs> um, 
But we also have this huge opportunity to actually really, to actually actively reimagine what that future looks like and what our world looks like to make it more fair, more just, more equal mm. um, for so many people that are already facing these impacts. And I think the core of solving the climate crisis is actually training it as an opportunity to build something better mm. out of the world that we already have and taking um, what we need and what we want to take forward as a bunch of communities and really discarding what we don't need. Um, and so that's not a clear answer. I think there's a lot of things that come into that, whether that's like energy transitions, whether that's leadership, um, whether that's like who is actually leading and who is like looking after the world that we have. Mm. Um, but there's a lot in there, but I think it's very much just about building a better future in the ways that we build. And I think all of those things actually intersect with the climate crisis um, in all of our facets of everyday life. I love talking with you, Grace. You're, you're, I think you're absolutely incredible. But then when you reference The Simpsons, just like it really, <laughs> yeah. your humility is incredible. And it makes you so great to talk with. So you tell I work I with really young people. Appreciate it. <laughs> no, but it really, I think you're so, you know, you're so easy to talk with and you have so much knowledge. But yeah, your humility, like Sam said before, you know, is what makes you so fantastic. So Thanks for sharing that. Em, another small question, how do we tackle climate change? Well, I guess I'm conscious that not everyone listening to this is going to be working full-time on climate like we are or an athlete using their platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I you know I keep kind of coming back to it, but this idea about stretching out to men, the part of the world that's within your reach, you know, all of us get to vote. Mm-hmm. Some of you might be members of a footy club. You might want to write to your footy club and tell them that you'd love to see them adopt a climate action plan. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be able to do that in your workplace. You might want to think about the next time you are, you know, thinking about how to do things at home, making some adjustments that are are going to be climate friendly. Um, You know, there are a lot of things that we can do in our day-to-day life that are cumulatively really powerful. And Mm. so um, I guess I don't want anyone to feel discouraged that they don't have a huge amount of power. Like we all have the ability to do something within our reach and it's just a case of deciding what's the next thing that you might do. Mm. Sam, how do we tackle climate change? Well, what they said (laughs) to start with and I think just to build on it a little bit, um, I think everything we do within our own power and within our own circumstances, it matters Mm. um, every little bit. Um, together and collectively and and uh, thinking about what impact we can have in our own environment. Mm. Natalie Isaac's point of view that you know you can save a ton of carbon mm. by just setting out to find the cheaper way to do things mm. and you can become much more engaged in climate through your action rather than having to come at it through climate science. We, that's available to all of us today is to work out how you can live a better life that actually has a much lower impact on our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, that we lived through a period where we learned so much about what happens quickly if we have a crisis. Mm. And I think the COVID pandemic for me was a sustainability crisis that was a dress rehearsal mm. for the kind of things that will happen in a mass transition when we have environmental impact colliding with economic system change. Mm-hmm. And what happened during that process, we, we realised that you have to do things differently fast. Mm. And when we backed people, when we gave um, families free childcare, when we actually gave people a basic income to get through it and people did the right thing, all of that, we came through it and showed that we can do things differently very, very quickly. Mm. So I think part of the climate crisis is not to be frightened by the scale of it because when these things, and they will hit, I mean, the, the, the mm. scale of change to get to net zero by 2050 or, you know, more particularly even closer to mm. us in the in the 2030s, 
the scale of that economic change for this country and for the world is so great that you can mm. hardly think about it. But when, when, once we're in it, we'll be changing so rapidly and we've mm. got to trust that backing people and, and backing the systems to get us through that will work because we did it during the dress rehearsal of, of COVID. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think we just have to be on it and, mm. and, and, and know that dealing with climate then deals with so many other things that make our, our world much, much better. Mm. And I'd say to listen to Sam, Grace and Emma is how we might be able to tackle it as well. <laughs> you watch you. <laughs> I'm not sure how many tackling's going to save it. But, no, um, but tackling a lot of things. Tackling a lot of things. <laughs> boom, boom. <laughs> Too good. Well, thank you so much, Sam, Grace and Emma, for joining us on The Cool Down. It's an honour and a privilege to be speaking with all of you and I know that our listeners are going to be very excited for this episode. Yes. Thank you, Sam, Grace and Emma. Um, it's been fantastic having you here and we're very grateful. Thanks for listening to The Cooldown, a footy for climate podcast. The Cooldown is produced by Sam Dalton. And audio is edited by Darcy Parkinson from Producey. Episode research is done by me, Jasper Pittard and Aloise Witkowski.